All right, it is recording, so we, we can begin. So, this morning, the subject of the mission and ministry of the church. Uh, it ought to be a subject that is close to our hearts and dear to our hearts because we are the church. <clears throat> and we're going to um, look to, at two particular areas, as I just mentioned, the mission and the ministry of the church. Now, when I say the mission of the church, what do you, what do you think of? Objectives. Okay, objectives. Winning others for Christ. What do we, what do we mean by mission? The great, the great, you want passages or definitions? I want more of a definition, like a synonym for mission. The purpose. Okay, purposes, okay. All right, now the ministry, what's another term for ministry? Service, okay. The service of the church, how the church serves. What? So when we're talking about the, the mission of the church, we're talking about, in essence, the purposes of the church or why the church exists. Why do we exist here? What are, what's our purpose here on the earth? And when we talk about the ministry of the church, we're, we're speaking about what, how the church serves, what the church is to do. What is its, uh, how does it fulfill its purposes here on the earth? What has God called it to do? And what the church does should correspond to its purpose, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. I yeah it's okay yeah it is a the numbers the numbers are incrementing <clears throat> so yeah the, the recording is on <laughs> all right so we're going to look then first of all at the mission of the church or the purposes of the church why the church exists now. Typically, as uh, theologians have dealt with this particular topic in the past, they have identified three main purposes of the church. And uh, so I want you to tell me what those are because we have a... We have a pretty astute group of people here. And... Um, I think you'll be able to tell me what they are. What is one of the key purposes of the church? Why do we exist? Glorify God. Okay, glorify God. Or what we, if we use the term that um, Jason taught us last week, we would use the term worship, right? To worship God. Okay. One of the purposes of the church is to worship God. What's another? Make disciples. Okay, make disciples. Actually, I'm glad the way that you said that because that really encompasses the next two. Most of the time when you read this, you'll find people, theologians, dividing that particular um, responsibility or purpose of the church into two. 
But really, it can be subsumed under one, and I'll explain that in a moment. If we, if we, were, to, if we were to divide making disciples into two categories, what might they be? Maturing Christians and doing evangelism. Okay, evangelism. And I'm going to just use another E word. Edification, or we could say growth. So these are the purposes of the church. Worship God, evangelize the lost, and edify or mature God's people. Let's look at some of the passages that deal with these particular areas, all right? What about the subject of worshiping God? Sometimes that, believe it or not, I've had in my experience, a pastor even question whether or not worship is the purpose of the church. You know, the only purpose of the church really here is to win souls. We're not here to worship God. We do that when we get to heaven. Well, are we to, to worship God? I think this congregation, this, this group of people are, isn't going to call that into question. But let's just look at some passages to deal with the subject of worship. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, this probably has to do more with um, corporate. However, uh, it it's, it's not limited to that. Of course, you know, we as the church can worship God individually, but of course, we worship God then corporately as well. So it really encompasses both. John chapter four, and um, let's uh, begin reading some of these passages. I'm going to start. Um, by handing out some passages for you to read. But just remember that this is the context, and I think everybody in here will be familiar with the context of Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, as she's called, and uh, he asks her for a drink. The disciples are gone. He asks her for a drink. She says, uh, you know, you're at, why are you asking me? I'm a Samaritan. And, and they go through the process of, of um, uh, her saying, I perceive that you're a prophet. <clears throat> and uh, when she perceives that he's a prophet, after Jesus tells her that she is living with a man who's not her husband and she's had five husbands in the past, um, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. She says in verse 20, our, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she says, where, where's the right place to worship? And... Um, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Which would be quite a dramatic statement because hadn't God selected uh, Jerusalem as kind of the, the holy city? And when, she, when he says this to a Samaritan, who, the Samaritans, they wanted to... Uh, worship on, I think it's Mount Gerizim. But um, when she, he says this to, to this Samaritan woman, he says, hey, 
this debate's over, it was neither one. That's going to be a pretty radical statement. Verse 22, you worship that which you do not know, we worship that which we know. Okay, so he acknowledges that, yeah, the Jews at least have the right place. For salvation is from the Jews. That is, the word of God given to the Jews Salvation comes through the Jews. Ultimately, it's going to come through the Jews because Jesus the Messiah is going to be a Jew, come through the nation of Israel. But notice what he says in verse 23, and I want us to focus on verses 23 and 24. But an hour is coming, an hour is coming, and now is. He's talking about a historical time period. And he's saying to this Samaritan woman, there's a historical time period that is on its way. In fact, it's here. It's here. Why is it here? An hour is coming and now it is. Well, we know, he doesn't go on and explain uh, in detail this, but we know that the reason why that hour is here is because the Messiah is here. The King is here. Jesus is here. And he is, as, we, as you recall when we talked about the subject of baptism, he is radically changing the organization, as it were, of God's people from an outward to an inward, to a, from a physical to a spiritual nation. Now, that's not to say that the spiritual wasn't supposed to be there all the way along, which it was, but it is that there was some radical changes going on. So, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Whoa! Does God want worshipers? Yes. <laughs> you better believe it. God wants worshipers. And he wants them now. The hour is coming, and now is. God wants worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus is, is explained to the woman, listen, you're getting it all wrong. In fact, you Jews are getting it all wrong, too, if you think that just the whole issue is just about where you're at. If you think that if you're just in Jerusalem, you're okay, wrong. You think if you're in Mount Gerizim or some other place else, and that's where you ought to be, and if you're there, you're okay, wrong. True worshipers, and this is always true, even in the Old Testament, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. They worship from the heart. Boy, there's a lesson for us, is there? Not in that. But what I'm trying to highlight here is simply the fact that worship is one of the things that God wants his people to do. He's God. <laughs> he even he even puts it like this, the Father seeks. He's seeking, looking for something. He's looking for those to be his worshipers, true worshipers, and they who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I could, I have a little excursus that I am going to forego for right now because of time, but um, just, just let that sink into your heart that what God wants in our worship is he wants spirit. That is, he wants us to worship from the heart, from the innermost being, and he wants truth. You know, and you can't have one without the other. If you have spirit without truth, then you can have cults and all sorts of things. 
If you have truth without the heart and the spirit, then you have dead orthodoxy. We need to have both. Well, the Samaritan woman was, and the Jews were getting it wrong because they were just focused on the place rather than the inner man and the heart. Okay, I'm going to skip my little rabbit trail here. Maybe come back to it if we have time. The point here, God is looking for worshipers. The term that he uses, by the way, is a term that means um, to kiss toward. (laughs) Literally. To kiss toward. And you can think then of someone who would bow down before a great king and kiss that king's ring finger or kiss that king's foot, something like that. Somebody who bows down before a great king. That's the idea, that's the literal meaning of the word worship here in John 4. But there's two other terms, by the way, that are used to, or translated worship with, in, the, in the New Testament. And both of those terms are used with regard to God's people worshiping. Look with me at Acts chapter 18, verse 13. Now this is a little different context. This is after the cross. Acts 18 and verse 13. And um, once we get there, let's see, I'm going to ask Derek if you would read that for me, please. Is that one verse? Yes. Well, actually... Um, go ahead and read verse verse 12 as well Paul is kind of he's in the city of Corinth he's been there for a year and a half and um, and this this is the uh, statement with regard to Paul so go ahead and read verses 12 and 13 while, uh, how do you say that name? Gallio? that this comment with regard to Paul is incorrect in this sense that he was not actually uh, persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. The only thing that was false about that statement was the little phrase contrary to the law. (laughs) He did encourage people to worship God is what I'm wanting to bring out here. And a different term for worshiping God is used in this particular passage. So here is this man, the Apostle Paul, who is persuading men to worship God. That's not true that it's contrary to law. It's entirely in accordance with the law, and what the law, by the law, probably means at least the, um, the five books of Moses, the Torah, maybe entire, the entire whole Testament. But the, the five books of Moses and the entire Old Testament pointed to Christ, and he is encouraging them to worship according to the law what the law prophesied would happen. So he is not encouraging them contrary to the law, but the point that I want to get out here is that he's encouraging them to worship. Paul 
persuaded them to worship according to the law. The third passage that is used in this regard, look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 2 and 3. Philippians 3 and 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul speaking to the Philippians, he has to deal with some who are emphasizing circumcision and saying you need to be circumcised and if you're not circumcised then uh, you're, you're not a full-blown Christian or full-blown follower of God <clears throat> and, he, and they teach uh, the subject on the subject of circumcision contrary to what the scriptures actually teach and so Paul is dealing with that but in dealing with that and, and, and by the way these people who are teaching this are circumcised Jews and they are called the circumcision that's just a kind of a shortcut term to refer to them so um, let me ask uh, Jim would you read uh, verses 2 and 3 pardon me Yes. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay. So he talks about those who are, in my translation, the true, the false circumcision and the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We are the, the true people of God. We are the real people of God. Who do what? Worship. worship in spirit. Worship in spirit. Does that sound kind of like Jesus? True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, right? For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We're not looking at the outward things. We're not looking at our heritage. We're not looking at the fact that we happen to exist in Jerusalem, you know, we're in Jerusalem, so that makes us okay. We happen to be circumcised, so that makes us okay. No. He's saying true, the true people of God are those who worship in spirit. Now again, I'm, I'm not wanting to deal with all the context of all these passages. What I'm trying to highlight here is simply this, that one of the missions of the church is to worship. That's what we, it's not just what we do, it's what we are. We are worshipers, and therefore we worship. We worship Christ. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in Christ Jesus, don't we? We, we will sing songs about what Christ has done for us, and don't we glory in that? We worship him for that? So, okay, purposes of the church. First purpose is to worship, worship God. By the way, this same, the same word that is used here, the third word was a word that was translated acceptable worship in the passage that Jason dealt with last week from Hebrews chapter 12 when he um, helpfully expounded that passage to us. 
So it's the same verse, same um, word that is used there. So three separate words that are used for words. All of those words that we kind of combine them together. Um, God wants us to worship him. So that's the first purpose of the church. And by the way, you can look at all the Psalms. And Psalms, we were to use the Psalms. We're to, you know, encourage one another with Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms are full of worship. How can, how can you be... Uh, exhorting and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs without incorporating worship. You know, we can't do that. So the second then, the second purpose of the church is, I'm going to put it in this order, evangelism. Evangelism. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier that um, the way that Jim phrased this particular answer that he gave was to make disciples and I would like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 <clears throat> what's the context of Matthew chapter 28 <laughs> you, you all know that I'm sure Jesus has died <clears throat> he's been raised from the dead just about to ascend to the father and before he ascends to the Father, he leaves what we call the Great Commission uh, to his disciples there in Galilee. And he tells them what he wants them to do. They haven't understood a lot of things, but um, now they're beginning to understand now that Christ has been raised from the dead. Yes. Uh, right before you get to the Great Commission, the disciples fall down and worship Jesus. Yeah. And that would be another little translation of worship, I think, to, to bow down, to fall down before. And they do, that's what they do, and they fall down at his feet, and they, they're worshiping him. Yes, yes. Amen. They do that. I don't know, uh, I could look it up, but I'm not going to take the time. Let's see what the term was that was used in that in verse 17. But yes, you know they worship him there. And by the way, if if he were not who he claimed to be, if he were not in fact God, then this would have been blasphemous. So Jesus, as a resurrected Christ, stands before them. He is about to ascend to his Father, and he says, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth." And in verse 19, he says, "Go therefore and make." Let me let me see what your translation says, um, Richard. Would you, Richard? Uh, Richard, would you read verse um, eight or nineteen and twenty? Do you have the ESV? Eighteen. Uh, nineteen and twenty. Nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Okay. Are you reading from the NASB? I I don't know. See. Uh, Does anybody? I don't. You know that's it. Does anybody have no for sure you got the ESV? Does it read the same? Okay, it, it reads the same. Okay, I, I wasn't quite sure, and I, I had read that earlier, but I forgot exactly what it says. So notice there in that particular um, passage, he says, um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And if you read that in the English translation, it appears as though we've got a couple of commands. The first command is go. second command is to make disciples. But actually, if you were to look at the original, that's not the structure of the passage. The structure of the passage, so I'm going to kind of just give you just a very basic structure. 
is more like this. Going make disciples. Okay, can you all see that okay? <clears throat> Make disciples is the only imperative, the only command in this particular passage. Going, baptizing, and teaching are actually what are called participles. Now, I don't want to give you a, a Greek um, you know, lesson here. <clears throat> and you don't really have to be too concerned about that. All you need to know is this, is that the main verb here, the main command is this one, make disciples. So Jesus is there and he is about to send and he gives the command, the responsibility of the church. And this is what he says. He says, going. In other words, the going is kind of the prerequisite. It's something that's assumed. It's not really something that's commanded. It's something that's assumed. Now, I know that some people might say that well, it's, a, it's a participle of imperative force. And I don't, I'm not going to argue that. But Nevertheless, in terms of its, of its um, syntax, this is a participle, and it's, say, it is kind of like say going, it's a prerequisite. This is what I want you to do. As you're going, assuming that you're going to be going, as you're going, this is what you're to do. Make disciples. And then <clears throat> he says how that's going to happen. How do you make disciples? What does that mean? What do you do? Well, two things. Baptizing that in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Okay? Two main things that are involved in making disciples. You baptize them, and you teach them. Now, let me ask you this question. Why do you think it is, in terms of when, when Jesus tells them to make disciples, why did Jesus not say, going, make disciples, by evangelizing them, preaching the gospel to them? Why does he say baptizing? What's that? Disciples are already Christians. But we're making disciples. We're going to make them. Oh. So how are you going to make a disciple? But to baptize is to identify in, with the one that we're obviously going and preaching the gospel concerning, which is Christ. So it's not just hearing, like you said, to the Thessalonians, but they embraced and believed the gospel. So, you know, sometimes the baptizing part is just, for some churches, just they walk forward, they put them in the water, you bring them up, that's it. But baptizing them in the name of, so they understand who they're identifying with, and that they died to the world and been raised in the newness of Christ. So there's a lot to that, just in that state. Yeah, yeah. It's an ordinance of the church. So, I mean, the first thing, they're, they're, they're saved and they're baptized in a local church. The Bible doesn't know anything about a Christian that's not connected to a local church. The New Testament's the ecclesiastical doctrine. All those letters are written to churches. Yes, yes. Baptizing and teaching also indicate that they've already been made disciples. Yeah, well the teaching does, the baptizing in a sense does, but I, really, I believe the reason why he summarizes it like this, and we're, we're kind of all hitting at it from direct, different directions here, 
is simply this. Because the task of evangelism is not done until you baptize them. It's that. That's the end of the task, as it were. What does that mean? Now, I know that we live in a day in which preaching the gospel, getting someone to trust in Christ, is oftentimes separated by time in a large measure before they're baptized. So there's a big period of time between they're trusting Christ and they're getting baptized. But that's really not so much the case in the New Testament. You don't see that. When they believe, they're baptized. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch traveling on the road and he believes and he, he, he tells him probably from Isaiah 53, here, this is Jesus and who he is and the Messiah and Ethiopian eunuch is, is, uh, believes and he trusts Christ and he says, well, here's some water too. What, what keeps me from being baptized? And he gets baptized right there. Now, I'm not saying that that's the thing that we ought to do. You know, just find the nearest uh, lake and, or puddle of water or pond or something. But <clears throat> what I'm highlighting here is simply that, that there's, there wasn't in the New Testament a big gap in time between someone believing and trusting, repenting of their sins being evangelized and being baptized. And in fact, and this is, I'm going to say something that might seem a little controversial, but I'll explain it in just a moment. I believe that it is, it is pretty sound to say that until someone is baptized, we need to hold their profession in reservation. It's the first act of obedience. Exactly. They're not going to be baptized. Exactly. Hit the nail right on the head. So here's the deal. Now I know that we have to deal with in our day a lot of ignorance. Are you raising your hand? Uh -huh. Or are you just yeah, okay? Just one second. I get you. Don't let me forget. Raise it again if I forget. Um, in our day, there's kind of a uh, a, a gap um, between <clears throat> preaching and there and there's a lot of Ignorance that goes on, ignorance even in the church. And there may and there may be the case that we need to take some time to instruct. We may we, we, we may need to take time to teach people about the subject of baptism after they've repented and believed. And we're not talking about baptismal regeneration. We're not saying be baptized and that's going to regenerate you. Not that at all. Yes, they have to repent and they have to believe. And once they've repented, and truly repented and believed, and have a credible profession of faith, as John the Baptist required, then they're to be baptized. And if a profession of faith is not credible, then no, they, they don't get baptized. But assuming they have a credible profession of faith, they should be baptized. And if they have been instructed in that, and said, look, this is what the Lord commands of you. This is really the first thing that the Lord requires of you. And after patient, faithful instruction from the word, if they go week after week and month after month and, and still just say, well, I'm just not going to do it, then we need to hold their professed faith in Christ with some reservation. Amy. I agree with Derek that it is like the first act of obedience. But what if the person has repented and they want to be baptized, 
but the church keeps withholding it from them, wanting to see this credible profession of faith. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why make them wait so long if, if they say they love the Lord, they repented, and they want to be baptized? You know, I think, especially in the past, we've like made people wait forever to be baptized. <laughs> That's, where is that in the New Testament? Yeah. That doesn't seem right. From yeah. the church's side, not the individual side. The individual wants to be obedient, mm. and they're being held back from it. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think that's something that we as the church need to think through and, and say to ourselves, well, um, you know, why am I withholding baptism? Is there a good reason for me to withhold baptism from this person who is making a profession of faith, who's, who is repenting of their sins, who's believing in Christ, who's trusting in Christ? And as far as we can see, yeah. you know, and they want to be baptized and obey, and that's why they want to do it because they want to obey Christ. Like, then why do we withhold? Baptize them, even yeah. if you might have it wrong. Like we don't know right. the person's heart, and we won't. So, but that seems like a good faith error. You know, if they turn out not to be. Yeah, and we and we explain to them all that that means to be baptized means that you're joining yourself to the local body. It means that when you join yourself to the local body, you're putting yourself under the discipline of that body. When you put yourself under the discipline of that body, if you go out from here and you begin living in such a way that is non-repentant, you're engaging in sin, and you just continue on in sin, or you engage in some kind of um, heretical doctrine, then you will be disciplined by the church. They, they know that, they understand all that, they still want to be baptized, they still want to join the church, they're committed to that, then, yeah, we need to, I think, as a church, be pretty serious about saying, hey, there's, there has to be some good reason not, I would say, to baptize them in that instance. So, anyway, that is my explanation for why Jesus says, make disciples, and here's how you're to do it. There's the initial phase, that is, getting them into the kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. That initial phase can be summarized with the term baptizing, because it includes preaching the gospel, it includes repentance, it includes faith, okay? All of that is included in baptizing. But, the, but it could be summarized by the kind of the culmination of that initial phase with the term baptizing. That's the evangelism part, purpose of the church. Are there exceptions? Are there exceptions? Uh, yeah, I'm sure they're like the thief on the cross. <clears throat> there are people who may be in the hospital <clears throat> and are in a condition such that they can't be baptized. Yeah. J.C. Rouse said there's, there's one thief on the cross so that no one will despair, but there's only one, so no one will presume. Yeah. So yeah, there's some, there are exceptions, to be sure. And there are exceptions simply because the church sometimes per per perpetuates... Yeah. Um, a condition that is not um, fully understanding the place of baptism in the life of the church. Okay, we need to hasten on. Secondly, you make disciples by teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. How long is it going to take you to learn to observe all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded? <laughs> A while, right? So this is the initial phase. This, this doesn't take, this is not something that you're doing all your life, you know, the initial phase. No, you know, you, you repent, you believe, you're baptized, that's kind of the beginning, that's, that's done and over.
But this part here, teaching you to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, um, that's the edification, that's the growth part, that's what happens all the rest of your life. I mean, what we do is, like what Andy's saying, like we, we sometimes invert the two a little bit. And we want the person to, instead of just understanding the gospel, repenting of their sins, and, and having some kind of foundation, we don't want to baptize them, but we want to teach them about baptism, but we expect them to know a whole lot more before we baptize them. Like in the early church, where they had this whole like year or two long of, the, of catechism before they would baptize Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so third purpose of the church, edification or growth. Um, what does it mean to make a disciple, to, to, for someone to be a disciple, by the way? Um, the term disciple, what does that mean? That, that was a term used commonly early on. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. <laughs> they were known as disciples before they were known as Christians. So what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is like a, a pupil, a learner, kind of an apprentice. You know, Pastor Keith has a plumbing business, and he knows plumbing really well. And he gets a new guy like my son-in-law, Jordan, and Jordan kind of comes in, and he's sort of like an apprentice. Well, um, Jordan's got a lot to learn. He can learn a whole lot from Lester or from... From, um, from Pastor Keith. But how does he learn? They go sit down in the classroom and he takes a piece of paper and says, okay, this is what you do. And uh, I'm going to give you a test. And Jordan gets a little test and he gets them all right. I'm a plumber now. <laughs> I know how to do it. <laughs> I'm sure they've got some Probably some tests and all, but you know, you're not going to consider him a plumber until he's out there on the job. He's watched you sweat copper and whatever other, other you know, things that you're doing there. And, uh, and you've actually done it, and he's done it, and he's become like you. Proficient. Becomes proficient in that skill. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's the kind of learner, the kind of pupil that Jesus is talking about here. Not just a classroom learner, but a on-the-job learner. And so we're to make those kinds of disciples, and that's why we are to teach them to observe all things whatsoever. Not just teaching them what they are, but teaching them to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us. And so this is the third purpose of the church, and that is if you wanted to you know, use this three categories instead of kind of breaking it down like this. You could say, okay, this is making disciples and this is training disciples. So but this is the heart of the gospel. You think of the challenge of that. I mean, I'm thinking, if I'm teaching a guy how to do plumbing, I get him one hour a week. <laughs> and I only instruct him from a classroom perspective. He never sees me do it. So we watch our pastors or we watch those who teach, but we never see them live life. Mm. Man, the challenge of that is enormous. So I think this is about everybody in the church, you know, living life with one another in a way that you see how I love my wife or how I raise my children or how I have to handle difficult situations. We watch each other in life, apply the scripture 
and live out our faith. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but there's no living and powerful plumbing code book. There's no plumbing spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit and a living and active word that also guides us. That's becoming disciples. You know, Jesus took those twelve men to himself. They lived with him and watched him. And you know, the critical part of you know us taking the opportunities to be with other people and watch them do life and how they live out their faith and love Christ is critical. Yeah, and 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 we as as you know believers, we we run into tough situations in life. You know, it's it's Tuesday. I don't know what to do. This situation has come up. I call somebody on the phone. And I say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I know you faced this. What did you do? How did you handle this? And you get real life experience. They talk to you, help you through it, pray with you, maybe come over and, you know, help you in certain ways. But, you know, life, you, you live life with them in that kind of a way. Derek. And I think so, a lot of times like, we desire that. We desire what Patrick Keith is talking about. And then... Um, we complain that we don't have it, but one way to get it is just to go and see, like, hey, that guy, I'd like to be like him. So I'm going to go up to him, I'm going to ask him if he'll meet with me every week or bi-weekly, and, and I'll, I'm going to I'm gonna make it work. Whenever he can meet with me, if it's at all possible, I'm going to do it. I don't care if it's at 5 a.m. or 9 p.m., I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. And there's, there's lots of different ways in which we can kind of work this out and make it happen, but the point is... Uh, to, to realize what is the goal, where are we headed. Okay, let's talk a little bit then about this matter of teaching or edification or growth. What does that encompass? Well, we've already said it encompasses what Jesus said teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. <coughs> Let's divide that into some categories. I'm going to put a circle up here. Okay, there are categories of life that the scriptures set before us. God and our relationship to Christ is at the center of them all. Okay? So when we disciple people, we are going to teach them, we are going to teach them to observe all things related to our relationship to, to God and to Christ and what that involves. And I think that we're all pretty well familiar here and pretty well instructed in, in that. It involves meeting with God's people and worshiping him on, on the Lord's day. It involves, you know, spending time in, in God's word and, and uh, you know, taking our burdens and our concerns and our praise and our worship to him in prayer. Those kinds of things. Building, strengthening our relationship to God, our relationship to Christ. Being cognizant of, of his presence with us as much as we can throughout the day and seeking to, to, um, to please him in the way that we live. And so he's the center of it all. But then that spills out into various areas of our life, such as the church. If we're going to make disciples, we're making disciples and telling people how 
they are to live and relate within the church. They're part of a church. Well, what does the word of God say in that regard? It says that everybody has a gift, and they were to all use those gifts for the edification, the, the upbuilding of God's people, right? Um, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12, um, lots of different places where we're encouraged to use the gifts, to use our, um, the giftedness that God has given us for the good of the church. And we'll be involved in the church. These are, this relationship here is the one relationship that is eternal. Think about that. Now, some of the others may have some eternal aspects to it as well, but this is the one that is by design and in a sense eternal. So the church, we teach people how to live in the church. Also, we teach people how to live in the family, do we not? Isn't that what Ephesians tells us? Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Doesn't Paul say that? How husbands are to uh, love their wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then later on he says <clears throat> um, that the, uh, well, earlier on he said, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So in discipling people, we tell them how to live in the family. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Okay, so he's telling wives how to live. He's telling husbands how to live. He's telling children how to live. When we are discipling people, we're discipling them in the realm of the family, the sphere of the family. And we tell them how they're to live in this regard. That's what is involved in making a disciple. That's what's involved in teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So in regard to the church, the sphere of the church, we teach them. In the sphere of the family, we teach them. Two other spheres. Can anybody tell me what they are? Work. Okay, work or labor. Labor. You know, the Lord says something about labor in the Ten Commandments. Six days shall you work. The seventh is the day of rest. There are passages like uh, 2 Thessalonians. Let me just flip to this one right, right quickly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So what does he mean by an unruly life and not according to, tradition, according to the tradition? What is the tradition that he's talking about? For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. What sort of undisciplined manner? Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working day and night so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. We worked, earned our own bread, ate what, from our own hands. Why? So that we could be an example. Verse 10, for even when we were with, who, were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. That's where to teach the church, where to teach God's people. Not to be lazy, go out and work. 
He says in verse 11, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Labor. Go out and get a job. You know? Get a job. Work. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about those who used to steal. What happens when they used to steal? What, what's the change that happens? You put off the old man and you put on the new man. What's the putting on the new man? Instead of stealing, you go out and you work with your hands so that you can have, and it's not just so that you can feed yourself, but so that you can have something to give to others and you can share. You used to take it from them and, and take it to yourself and use it for your own selfish ends, Ephesians 4. And Paul says, no, now, now you go and you work and you, you don't take from somebody else. You get it by your own labor, your own work with your hands. But not only that, you get it so, to, so that you can, instead of taking it from people, you can give to others who are in This, the area of labor, there's a whole lot, we could have whole lessons on the subject of labor. I think, I think uh, if I remember right, Aaron Hope taught on the subject of labor in Serbia. What's the, what's the fourth area? State. Yes. State. By state, I don't mean like the state of Kentucky, but government, civil government, the state civil, go civil government. We have responsibilities in the area of civil government. You can look at Romans chapter 13 just as a quick example. The Apostle Paul says this, let every person be in sub subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for, are, are not a cause for fear for, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you all have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon one who practices evil. Now I know, and we all know, that this is not an absolute. Um, the Apostle Peter says in Acts, when the civil authorities were requiring of him something that was wrong, something that was contrary to, to what Christ wanted to do, he says, I have to obey God rather than man. And we know that civil authorities are oftentimes run by corrupt men, probably most of the time run by corrupt men. Nevertheless, even in this circumstance, and by the way, Rome was run by Nero, and Nero was a pretty corrupt guy, burned Christians. Um, nevertheless, Paul says to be in subjection to them, okay? As much as it lies within us, as long as we're not being required to do something contrary to the word, contrary to what God expects of us, then we're to be in subjection for, to, to the governing authorities. And we're to pray for them, 1 Peter, First Timothy chapter 2. Pray for them that we might live a peaceful and, and, and tranquil life. 
But we, we teach, the, the point here is not to get into all the details of that either. My point here is simply that when we, as a church, fulfill this third purpose, the purpose of edification or growth, we're teaching, we're making disciples in all of these areas, all the spheres of life, and that pretty much encompasses all your life, doesn't it? <laughs> not much of your life that falls outside of this, this purview, these, these spheres. And so that's, that is the job of the church. That is the job of God's people. That is what it means to make disciples of all people. We're teaching them to observe all things whatsoever. He's commanded us in all of these areas. How does that happen? What do we do? What are the kinds of structures that we put in place? If we move on to the second area, this is the mission of the church. What about the ministry of the church? State, you can tell me some of them. What are some of the things that we do as a church? I'll give you a hint. We meet on Sunday morning to worship God. What else do we do? Give our tithes. Okay, we give our money. Community group, share each other's burdens. Okay, we have community groups. Service time, time, time to the church. In other words, service, like setting up chairs. Yeah, yeah, we, we dedicate time to serve. What else do we do? What are we doing right now? Study. Studying God's word. We have a, we call this a discipleship class. We have Sunday school classes. We have Sunday school. We, we build that into the structure of the church. What else do we do? Sing. What's that? Sing. We sing? Yeah? Pray. We pray? Pray? We give? We give? Yes? We preach. We send missionaries. We send missionaries. We have the Lord's table. We baptize people. We can have outreach events of some sort. Can we not? We can take advantage of different cultural community events like uh, make a bed. You know, that's kind of a community sort of a deal. Make a bed. We can use make a bed as a, a, a means of outreach. There's lots and lots of ways in which we can do this, in which ministry service can take place. And they take place in order to accomplish the purposes of the church in one way or another. Okay, time is up. Well, one more comment and I'll let you have you close in prayer. Yeah. You go down the, the mission and purpose of the church, and those are all, well, out upward is God, but inward as far as the church, but I mean, the whole outward focus of uh, benevolence or being salt and light to our culture, hmm. you know, is something outside the walls of the church that we do as one of our missions, mm-hmm. really, in yeah. society, is to be salt and light. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> okay, well, our, our time is up. Dave, would you close us in prayer? And then, anybody? Lord, you are the one who uh, created, designed the church, and has give, have given us uh, your spirit that we might walk in obedience to you. We thank you for the word that you've given us, Lord, that we might know our mission and purpose. We pray that we would 
be obedient uh, to you in all of these areas. We thank you you've not left us to ourselves, but you've given us your word and your spirit that we might uh, uh, serve you and honor you and glorify you in all of these ways. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for Heritage Baptist Church and for the uh, fellowship of the believers that we have here. Thank you for the faithfulness of the people that you have put over us, Lord, to uh, shepherd us and to teach us your word that we might in turn go out and be make disciples. And so we ask your blessing upon the corporate gathering of your people even today. Lord, may our hearts be filled and edified and encouraged in the faith as we grow in grace and in our knowledge of you. May we worship you rightly this morning in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.